You're listening to WGNS again on this Thursday morning. Today is the 18th of May and Mitchell Moat from the Agriculture Extension Service right here in our own backyard in Murfreesboro on John R. Rice Boulevard joins us on air. How are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you. How are you? I am doing good. You guys are uh, getting into full swing right now this time of year, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Things have have been... uh, Blossoming. Well, (laughs) blossoming and sprouting and growing and yeah. So, and, it, and it'd been wet too. So, yeah. So, what all types of programs, uh, you know, really get a, a big start this time of year? Well, so the biggest, the greatest number of our, you know, planned educational events take place during what you would call the off season, during the, the winter and the early springtime, uh, because you know, folks typically aren't able to be outside and doing things outside as much as they can now. Uh, so that's when the majority of those things take place. But, uh, you know, the Master Gardener Training Program, it has completed for the year. Uh, a lot of our, uh, uh, like Grassmasters Lawn Care Academy, Introduction to Vegetable Gardening in Middle Tennessee, uh, uh, lawn, lawn, lawn and Landscape Weed Science, those kind of things, you know, they're, they've, they've been completed for the year. So right now, what we're doing more of, I guess, than anything, uh, are, are dealing with uh, clientele requests, you know, for assistance in terms of, identifying the cause of problems solving those problems um you know doing doing soil test analysis uh discussing or or sometimes just explaining what what does the soil test mean once you get it because it is written in english but you know maybe it's not the best uh, best literature out there or the most readable literature out there and sometimes folks have a little bit of problem uh, understanding exactly what the report tells them you know a lot of uh, because things are up and growing and folks are trying to do things to grow things and they run into the problems uh, plants don't grow just like you thought they would or you know there seems to be an issue in keeping some things alive we get a lot of requests for <clears throat> why is that uh, and, and trying to identify the cause of problems and then you know offering potential solutions to those problems so a lot of one-on-one uh, visits uh, uh, folks coming into the office they bring samples of things um, going out into um, into the field and, and making site visits uh, to, to homes and uh, uh, other locations you know to, to see firsthand what's going on and then have a better idea maybe as to uh, what what the problem is and how to deal with it hey you know another issue that i've heard from a lot of people really over the last couple of years because murphy's bros growing like hotcakes yep you have got more and more neighborhoods being built with homes almost on top of each other and small lots yeah it, it leaves homeowners to this issue that you know we've had in the past but maybe not as much today and that is their front yards while they're smaller and probably easier to take care of being smaller the problem is there's more gravel mixed in with their soil because these lots are, are so close to each other. The gravel from the foundation is spilling over when they're building the house. Mm-hmm. So how in the world do they get a nice lawn if they're just moving in? Well, boy, I tell you what, if we could, if we, if we had the magic bullet for that, we would be set, I think. <laughs> um, you know, it and. I mean, you, you hit on something very true uh, that sometimes, especially on a smaller lot, uh, you will have more, just call it construction debris. Uh, I don't know a better term for it. Uh, just because of the confined space um, that, you know, those buildings are sitting on. And like you mentioned, you know, gravel from foundations or from the, uh, when they poured the driveway or poured the sidewalk, et cetera, things like that. So you have, you know, less than ideal uh, soil conditions. So... 
in order to to establish a uh, a relatively quality loan and, and i guess quality depends on the individual you know what their criteria is what their expectations are but uh, to generally grow grass whether it's a warm season or a cool season grass you need uh, enough soil depth to support uh, the grass growth uh, to support uh, or to provide a root zone where those uh, plants can put a root down into the ground uh, and and be able to to pull water out of the soil uh, and the deeper the ground is the more water it will hold so it becomes drought stressed uh, it takes longer for it to start showing drought stress because a deep soil will hold more water than a shallow soil will uh, gives it more room to root uh, there's more pore space in those deeper soils, and that's where the oxygen and the water are going to reside uh, in those in those soils. So, doing things up front before the lawn is ever uh, installed will go a long way towards ensuring or at least uh, maximizing potential for success. And that is, you know, removing uh, as much debris as possible. When you're talking about rocks, if you can remove rocks two inches or larger in diameter, you you, you got to step in the right direction. Uh, if you are on a site that is uh, uh, has minimal topsoil. Uh, maybe excavation was done and the soil has been has been graded away, moved around, relocated, whatever the case may be, before uh, that lawn is seeded or before sod is installed mixing it organic matter into the existing soil there and that's you know generally uh, the compost is a good option for that bulk compost that just you're going to you're going to add more organic matter to it so that improves rooting depth because it can relieve compaction uh, you got those larger uh, uh, particles of organic material and so they don't compact uh, as easily as uh, the, the clay in our native soils will so that maintains uh, uh, pore spaces longer and the more pore spaces you have the more uh, area there is in that soil to hold oxygen to hold water and it's easier for roots to move through because you think about it you know do, do, when we think about the way plants grow do plants grow in the soil or do they grow through the soil and, and so you know they kind of grow you know, through the soil they don't they don't go through physical particles they go through the pore spaces okay that's how those roots elongate and, and move down vertically and, and, and out horizontally to establish themselves so the more pore space you have the better chance that plant has to establish a good root system and a strong root system you know is going to be essential for long-term turf survival so the short answer, I guess, or a, a long answer to that very simple question was do the preparation work up front to prepare uh, a, a seed bed for uh, a lawn that will give it the best chance of survival by, you know, maximizing the amount of organic material that's in there, by taking away, uh, taking out those uh, uh, obstacles like like rocks or construction debris, et cetera, pieces of brick, uh, wood scraps, so on, things like that. I know sometimes those things get buried uh, and, and, you know, that's going to be an impediment to, uh, to, to water infiltration, impediment to root growth, and so on. So it just adds to problems over time. And, you know, if you've got an existing lawn, sometimes it's, it's very difficult to, to, to make big changes, rapid changes in the quality of that soil uh, without basically, you know, tearing it up and starting all over. Uh, smaller changes can be made over time by a, a, a practice called top dressing where, uh, you know, that lawn area is uh, core aerated. Uh, you create lots of uh, uh, channels, openings in the soil via the core aerification process. And then 
after those channels or after those aeration uh, holes are made, then you come back with a, uh, and apply a layer of top dress material uh, such as compost. And we're talking about a thin layer, you know, probably no more than a half inch thick over the surface of that and then raking it, dragging it in to help move that organic matter down into those aeration holes. And that's going to help add organic matter into the soil. And, and over time, you can make a difference that way. And I would say because these yards are getting a lot smaller homes probably getting a little smaller in some cases too uh, it, it would make it so that you would think it'd be more affordable to just you could go out and buy the you know the top dollar topsoil for your yard but that's not quite the case because homes are getting more and more expensive and lots are getting more and more expensive so you can't quite go out and buy the uh, the best topsoil all the time well and I, you know so so what is topsoil it's I, you know, I get from the from from a from a soil science standpoint, it's that top layer of soil where it's typically going to have the most biological activity. It's going to have uh, you know more uh, more more uh, uh, animal life in there. You know, both microbial as well as you know the invertebrates, the insects, the worms, etc. Things like that. That's where the majority. The major portion of root zone is you're talking about what used to be referred to as a plow layer when folks still plowed ground. They don't necessarily plow ground so much anymore, not turn it like uh, did back uh, in, in earlier agriculture. But so the, the, the root zone, you know, six, seven inches deep, the plow layer, that's where you're going to have the greatest percentage of organic matter because as, as plants grow there and they die, you know, the roots stay in the ground and they decompose and organic matter builds up uh, and that supports the, the microbe and whatnot. But when you buy topsoil i mean there's only so much of that out there okay and you know if someone is selling soil there's no uh there's not a legal definition of topsoil that somebody has to you know adhere to uh if you're selling soil and, and they, they could be selling bottom soil well you know what they're gonna sell what's on top of uh, of the hole i guess you know when when they dig it out that, that was on the top so you know that's going to vary some but uh, you know buying buying soil this you know screen soil that's been run through a sieve uh to uh to to, to screen out you know debris and in and, and roots and things like that you know that that's that helps that yeah helps some okay and, and you know I, I don't even know where you can buy because you know there, there used to be certain places that sold topsoil and a lot of landscaping places used to and i don't know that you can still buy topsoil oh, you, you can buy screen soil uh, many of the garden centers that sell bulk materials you know they do have screened soil so uh, still available out there it is i don't do they call it topsoil maybe some do i don't know just call it do, dirt I don't it's, know. It's, it's soil yeah uh, but you know and, and a soil like that mixed you know having some organic matter already mixed in it like some compost and they do i know various places will sell that they will they will you know run it through basically you know a big tumbler and mix uh, mix some compost in with the soil and that you know that that adds some quality to maybe uh, you know improves the uh, the quality of the soil you're buying so that's and i guess that, if your you know yard is not too big of what you're covering you you could probably mix in some some better stuff as well oh yeah and that, that's that's the whole point of top dressing is you're you're adding you know that that organic material into uh, what's there you know initially yeah that's and, the point and then deciding what type of grass to put down for that you know first time home buyer or you know they just built a house let's say what what do we pick here in rutherford county so we live in a uh, climatically in an area called the transition zone and that's 
it's called the transition zone because to our north we've got uh, you know a, a cooler uh, a humid environment uh, and then to the south we've got a much warmer humid environment and so we're kind of at the interface between those two and it's a transition from one into the other so what that means is that that we can you know we have the choice of of, of trying to grow two different types of grasses and and those are uh, the types are based on when they grow uh, so we can grow what's called a warm season grass those grasses their sweet spot for the greatest performance is in that 80 to 95 degree temperature range they, that's things like bermuda grass and zoysia grass they uh, uh, they have to have heat uh, in order to grow aggressively uh, they, they they need lots of sunlight they're more efficient users of water so that gives them the ability to survive uh, dry periods without uh, irrigation uh, they'll still suffer but they will survive those probably more so maybe than the other choice we have which is a cool season grass and a cool season grass does you know the sweet spot for it is in that 60 to 75 degree temperature range so you're talking about you know spring and fall being the uh, the best times or for the most aggressive above ground growth etc as well as root development on those grasses and those are things like tall fescue kentucky bluegrass uh, perennial ryegrass things like that um they will those cool season grasses provide the greatest number of potential days of green grass color in a year's time uh, because they don't go through a winter dormancy or a cold weather dormancy the way a warm season grass does those warm season grasses again bermuda and zoysia at frost they're going to turn brown go dormant they don't die but the above ground growth turns brown they're no longer actively growing and so uh you know they have a shorter growing season and thus they have a shorter maintenance season typically in terms of mowing because you know there there's not as many of those hot weather months uh compared to when that grass would be aggressively growing compared to the cool season grasses so you know that's one choice you know do you, do you want a warm season grass or a cool season grass you know your site very often is going to dictate which one of those is even possible because the the cool season grasses they have typically greater shade tolerance than the warm season grasses do. So if a site does have a fair amount of shade on it, then maybe warm season grass is not an option for you at all. Um, another thing to, to consider when selecting a, a, a permanent you know, turf on a home lawn, um, warm season grasses are, are creeping grasses. They spread. And, you know, that's an advantage because if a little spot, you know, for example, you're mowing the yard, you run out of gas in the lawnmower, you get the gas can to fill the lawnmower up, you spill some gas on the grass, the grass dies, the gasoline kills it. If you've got a creeping grass like Bermuda grass, soysia grass, okay, it'll send stolons, rhizomes, above ground and below ground uh, uh, shoots over into that area, and it'll, it will, you know, fill that area back in again. Hmm. With uh, a cool season grass like, say, tall fescue, which is a bunch grass, it won't do that. They don't creep over and spread like that. So uh, that's an advantage. But it's also can be viewed as a disadvantage because they do creep. And if you've got, say, a Bermuda grass turf and you've got landscape beds, flower beds, vegetable garden, it will creep over into that to those areas if you allow it to. So what was once a very, a very uh, uh, desirable ground cover now is a weed depending on where it is. And so it's difficult, you know, to combat that and keep it out. So, you know, just knowing what the what the characteristics are what your site will support is going to be the determining factor but from a cool season grass standpoint 
tall fescue is the most uh, uh, most often used here it's probably best adapted for most environments uh, and then from a warm season standpoint Bermuda grass is probably used uh, in, in larger quanti- in, in, in more lawns than zoysia grass is. Uh, from a, a lot of zoysia grass is not available in the form of seed. They don't; those varieties don't produce enough viable seed for seed to be harvested. So they have to be vegetatively propagated. They have to be sodded or plugged in. Whereas Bermuda grass, uh, a lot of some of those varieties are vegetatively propagated. You don't buy seed; you buy sod. But there are more seeded varieties of Bermuda grass available for folks than there are uh, in zoysia grass. So. There you go. And by the way, folks, if you have any questions regarding lawns or gardens, your front yard, whatever it may be, you can call it in or text it to us at 615-893-1450. Mitchell Mote on air with us this morning from the Agriculture Extension Service. Now, if anybody listening, let's say they had a bag of Kentucky fescue and they meant to put it down last year to fill in some patch spots you know some areas that needed some uh, some extra seed mm-hmm. that weren't growing if they kept it over the winter in their garage or whatnot can they reuse that bag of the of the grass seed well so every every package <clears throat> excuse me every package of grass seed is going to have a uh, uh is going to have a germination uh test you know information on it and it'll tell you like when it was germ tested uh and then that's just you know what percentage of that grass seed is expected to germinate and it'll tell you you know when it was done and what the percentage is so typically on like for example tall fescue uh it, it's going to be you know 80 percent or better okay now <clears throat> it'll also specify this was germ tested you know let's say in you know april of 2020 for the uh you know to be used up through uh, or that would be a, an accurate test or assumed accurate maybe you know through 2021 uh depending on how it's stored uh germination percentages typically go down over time uh, especially if it's stored in a a, a warm environment Cold storage will help seed to maintain uh, its germination potential longer or allow those seeds to remain viable longer. Uh, but, yeah, if it was stored in the garage, sure, a bag of that seed, some of it's going to germinate. Will as much of it germinate as it would have the year before? Maybe not. And the longer, you know, the older it gets, the lower the germination percentage uh, becomes. I notice some of those bags of fescue or the, or the seeds, you know, for the lawn, they've got a uh, – you know an extra color tint to them i don't know mm-hmm. what they're putting in them but it gets all over your hands i do notice that yep. what, what is that stuff so a lot of it is you know they talk about a coated seed or, or the, the the bag well this is coated seed you know seed coat technology um various things um you know typically it'll be a starch of some kind is that's applied to it and it may uh, uh it may have a uh uh, a, a bit of uh, a bit of nutrition in that maybe just a little bit of fertilizer attached to that to kind of help jump start those seedlings when they do germinate uh, there may be you know um, and I said a starch the reason being it, it's kind of like a sponge to help hold water around that seed to maybe uh, in, in encourage germination uh, a little bit so that a naked seed might dry out faster than would a coated seed dry out so you know that's that's a theory behind it um might even be you know potentially could be maybe a fungicide in there so that it can help protect the seed against uh you know damping off which is a a disease that can attack 
young seedlings uh, especially if they if you try to establish them during the you know the latter part of the summer early part of the fall when it's still relatively warm out there uh, that, that can be an issue of those and the thing to keep in mind if you buy a coated seed uh, you know look on the look on the, the tag um, it'll tell you uh, uh, how <clears throat> what the percentage of, of, of seed is in there Generally on a coated seed, for example, tall fescue, you know, it's just tall fescue seed, just, just bare naked tall fescue seed, roughly, you know, almost a quarter million seed in a pound, 225,000 seeds, what it averages out. And if you've got a coated seed, so you've made that, that individual seed larger, you've added a coating on the outside of it, you also add weight to it. So a handful of that coated seed versus a handful of the uncoated seed you know may may weigh more but have fewer seed in it because the individual seeds are heavier so that that influences that affects uh, uh your your application rate uh so you have to pay attention to that when you're purchasing if you do purchase those coated seeds because it can make a difference you think you're putting out you know eight pounds of seed per thousand feet where in reality you might be putting out you know five pounds of seed per thousand feet and that makes a difference so a lot of stuff to look out there for and yep. uh, to read the labels about, for sure. You know what? Uh, sometimes reading directions and following directions will put you on the right path. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Yep. Mitchell Moat with us today from the Agriculture Extension Service right here in Murfreesboro on John R. Rice Boulevard. We're going to take a short break, and then we will be right back. And if you have any questions, feel free to call us or text those questions in 615 615- Eight nine three one four five zero, and we'll get your uh, we'll get your question on the air if you text it to us, or we'll get you on the air if you call us six one five eight nine three fourteen fifty. This is Peter Demas inviting you to enjoy a meal with our family at Demas's Restaurant. With cold and flu season here, nothing helps my family more than having the Demas's baked chicken and rice soup. It was a soup that was created by my grandmother, and we not only sell it by the cup, but we also sell it by the quart, by the half gallon, and by the gallon. So stop by anytime today and bring soup to your family that may be sick or a friend that's in sick, or just to enjoy it just because it tastes so good. Demas's Restaurant. Hi, this is Tina Fox at the Rutherford Farmers Co-op. Please come and see us for all your garden needs. We have everything you need to help that garden grow. And we also have what you need for landscaping and your lawns. We have black and brown mulch in bulk. Please come see us. And as always, don't forget us for all your gifts, clothing, and pet needs. This is Tina Fox. Your co-op farm and home center is located at 985 Middle Tennessee Boulevard, just off of South Church. Hi, this is Amanda from Animal City. We need to be especially mindful to protect our pets from fleas and ticks. Here at Animal City, we carry a variety of products to keep your dog and cat safe. In addition to products that will directly protect your pet, we carry a variety of items to keep your home safe as well. Here at Animal City, we would like to thank Murfreesboro for letting us be your family-owned and operated pet store for 33 years. You can find us at Animal City at 919 Northwest Broad. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now that time, 8.46. You're listening to WGNS again on this Thursday morning, today the 18th of May. And Mitchell Moat is our guest today from the Agriculture Extension Service. And uh, 
We welcome your calls at 615-893-1450 or your text messages, either one, 615-893-1450. Now, you you wanted to mention something about ash trees. Yeah, I appreciate that, Scott. So, several years ago, you know, there there was an insect uh, that started making the news uh, in Tennessee, something called the emerald ash borer. And I, folks may remember uh, the Department of Agriculture put up traps, uh, various locations all around the county, uh, these big uh, kind of triangular-shaped green and purple-colored traps. And folks would see those, and they'd wonder, what the heck is that? You know, where, why, why are those out there? Well, you know, those were kind of monitoring traps. They were trying to, you know, evaluate the, uh, the spread of the emerald ash borer across the state of Tennessee. Well... <clears throat> So, like I said, several years ago, uh, and when I say several years ago, you know, 10, 12, something like that, it, you know, time gets away. But um, they were they were found, you know, eventually they made their way into Middle Tennessee. So emerald ash borers were detected in Middle Tennessee, and so the assumption was, okay, they're here, so uh, we've got them. All right, so they're established here. Well, so what do emerald ash borers do? Well, they kill ash trees, Um so do they literally bore into the tree? Literally, they do. Like a, like a carpenter bee almost. Well, not so much like a carpenter bee because a carpenter bee, you know, they're, they're not eating the tree. They're not living on the, on, on the wood, okay? okay? And a carpenter bee bores into wood, not necessarily into a tree, you know, into finished lumbers where they bore. But they're just making a nest. That's what they're doing. But uh, the, the ash borer, and it's, it's, a, it's called an emerald ash borer because it's an emerald green color. It's, kind of, it's a metallic uh, uh, green-colored beetle, um, and it's small. I mean, it can easily fit on the surface of a dime without extending uh, over either side of it. It will fit very plainly, very easily into the, uh, onto the top of a dime. But um, it, it's the larva of these things that, that or the, you know, the, the worm stage, the caterpillar stage, that work up under the bark, and it damages the vascular tissue, the circulatory tissue of the tree. So basically, you damage enough of that, well, the tree dies due to poor circulation because the roots no longer are connected to the canopy. The canopy is not connected to the roots. So any photosynthesis takes place. None of that energy is, is makes it down to the root system where it can be stored for later use. And any water taken up by the root system doesn't make it up in the rest of the tree because, it, you know, they're not circulating anymore. And these things, are that they kill ash trees. That's what they do. And... If people have ash trees in their landscape and they want to protect those and they have to be proactive about it, this is not something that you can, that you're going to fix once a tree has them in there. You know, I mean, it would be rare to it'd have to be caught just at the very earliest signs of infestation. And generally, you're not going to know it's, there's any infestation until you start seeing decline in the tree. Well, at that point, the damage is done and, you know, it, you just need to start deciding okay when we're going to take this tree down because if it's going to fall eventually because they're going to die the reason i brought that up is people are starting to notice uh especially folks that own you know chunks of land and, and they've got a lot of trees on them well i notice on the hillside over here these there's a bunch of trees didn't leaf back out this spring and i went and looked you know and they're all dead and well they're ash trees ash borer killed them um it, it, and you can protect if you've got ash trees in your landscape and a lot of ash trees are you know they're they're native to tennessee uh and they're used or have been used uh, in in landscapes and in lawns large shade trees 
you can protect them, but but you've got to you've got to do it on a regular basis. Uh, and and again, you don't wait until you see damage. Uh, how do you protect them? <clears throat> There's an insecticide that's been developed uh, for use by homeowners that is easy to apply. You just mix it uh, in a pail, a container, a bucket uh, of water, and apply it to the ground around the tree. It's a it's a, a soil applied systemic where the tree roots will pick that uh, insecticide up, move it up into the tree, so that when a susceptible insect then tries to feed on the tree, they ingest the insecticide. And you know the, the active ingredient in it is something called imidacloprid, uh, and you'll find that in a variety of brands available at garden centers, you know, all across Middle Tennessee. So I just say that to to, to remind folks that if you do have ash trees, and especially uh, if you want to protect them, then then you're going to want to uh, take those steps and apply that insecticide. And it's an, it's a one time a year thing. You, know, you, you can apply the insecticide one time per year. You do it while the tree's actively growing. So right now, if you've got ash trees that you've never treated before, now would be a fine time to do that. Uh, and then, you know, just put it on your calendar and do it next year. Again, when those trees begin to put out new growth, it tells you the tree's growing, so the, the insecticide can be applied. But otherwise, uh, you know, it, our ash tree population in the state is going to get to be pretty slim, I expect. Where it has occurred in other states, yeah, they just don't have ash trees anymore. We had two text messages here, and the first one was asking about weeping willows, and they said that they feel like they used to see more weeping willows in Tennessee, especially in Middle Tennessee, but they haven't seen hardly any lately. Is there something we should know about weeping willows? No, not not any you know in, endemic uh, uh, problem necessarily with weeping willows, I guess. You know, things fall out of favor sometimes in terms of uh, being used in a landscape. Um, the, one, one thing you mentioned about smaller properties is, oh, we can make a pretty large there. tree, and they may not be the best suited for smaller properties. Um, and i mean weeping willows have always had you know some problems associated with them uh they'll get a fungal disease on the foliage on the leaves and you know they'll defoliate a little bit early and so you got all these little bitty leaves all over the yard and then it's you know still in the summertime when they ought to be green and and folks think well they look kind of like a you know a stripped off umbrella with all those <laughs> naked limbs hanging out there uh, that that may have something to do with it but as far as there being any particular issue causing their decline no i'm not aware of anything like that the other question says the uh, the firm that sprays and de-weeds my yard left a note hanging on the door that said my backyard has three kinds of grasses in it they uh, urged me to call them and so i looked at the lawn myself and it looked fine to me almost full coverage if you ask me beautiful shade of green what could be the problem with this before i go and call this well i don't know that it's necessarily a problem uh, to have multiple species uh, in the lawn especially if it suits you yeah okay? but if, it, if, if you can't tell you. <laughs> now uh where it becomes a problem i guess is uh you know for example uh, a, a common uh grass we would call a weed grass in our yards uh, uh from from a cool season standpoint is uh, annual bluegrass Okay, annual bluegrass. It's uh, uh, it, it's a cool season grass, and it's a it's a bluegrass species. Um, it will germinate in the you know late summer, fall time frame. The same time people plant tall fescue and, and other cool season grasses, 
and it'll grow throughout the winter uh, and and it's a really prolific seed producer annual plants tend to be very heavy seed producers because that's how they they reproduce that's how they survive is through the production of seeds and be, they're annuals <clears throat> cool season annuals so now this time of year in in areas that have a big population of annual bluegrass they're putting out lots and lots of seeds so that can be a little unsightly because the other grasses are not seeding so that changes the appearance some and because they are annuals as the closer we get to summer then these things are going to become uh, uh, closer to death and they start going off color instead of being a nice green they start to go into a yellowy lime green uh, and then eventually they're going to turn brown okay and die so that is you know be one, that would be one grass that would not be desirable in, in, in a mix out there all right so that I don't know. That might be a problem. That might be what they're talking about. I don't know. Yeah. Another one is uh, uh, another winter annual weed grass, something called little barley, and it does the same kind of thing. Uh, it's going to die, uh, and and it leaves you know brown places where once it was all green, uh, but it's, it follows that same life cycle. Um, Dallas grass is a, a warm season weed grass, and. It's got a different texture than does uh, the turf grasses. You know, it's a wider textured, wider blade, uh, and it produces a much heavier seed head. Um, I don't know what species they're talking about, but potentially they're referring to that. But if, for example, if you've got a lawn with, you know, a mixture of tall fescue and Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass, so what? I mean, that's fine. Those are yeah. all cool season grasses. They're 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 a little they're different species, but they grow during the same time of the year. And yes, there can be some variation in appearance, but it still can be. It, it look pretty darn good. It's a lot. It, it, it's more attractive than bare ground. Absolutely. So that's not necessarily a problem. It's only a concern uh, if you have uh, uh, you know those weed grasses that are going to to create a lot of uh, uh, variation in appearance and uniformity. You know if that's a concern to you. All right. And then the other thing I guess would be if you had a combination of uh, warm season grass and cool season grass, and a lot of people do that. You know, they'll have tall fescue, but they've, they've got Bermuda grass, common Bermuda grass. They didn't plant it. It was just already in the ground. That's why they have it. Okay. That Bermuda grass will uh, hot weather grass. So when the tall fescue is suffering, or the Kentucky bluegrass, whatever the cool season grass is, when it's suffering in the heat of the year, in the heat of the summer, well, that Bermuda grass is growing aggressively. It loves heat, so it tends to expand. And, you know, during during uh, the, the spring and the summer, uh, especially the early part of the summer, they can look very uniform. But then as you get into the really hot months and dry months, if you don't have irrigation, then the tall fescue or the other cool season grass starts to, to decline some. So you get, you know, a difference of appearance then. And then you transition into the fall season, into the winter season. Frost comes, but the Bermuda grass turns brown. So now you've got, you know, patches of green that was the cool season grass and then the patches of brown, which is your dormant warm season grass. So you lose that uniformity there. That could be a potential concern for somebody. But again, if it suits you, don't worry about it. It's yours, right? Uh, That's right. So, you know, just because you have more than one species in your yard doesn't mean it's a bad thing. So it's 
could be a money-making opportunity for a, a landscaper. <laughs> it it could be. It just depends on what the potential client's expectations and goals are in terms of their turf quality. How, how much perfection they really want. There you go. Uh, next question says, I have a laurel bush that was affected by the hard freeze that we had this As past winter. As did everybody that had a laurel shrub. So this is normal. Yeah. It says it was about five feet tall and it is all brown with the exception of a few green sprigs coming out at the base at the base should i cut it down probably so uh so there's the, answer the brown there. stuff That's... the brown stuff on top is dead it's trying to regenerate uh, from root suckers you're probably going to help it do that if you did cut it back to where the green growth is trying to emerge uh, from the base of the plant um it it'll be a fairly slow process i guess but you know it, it should do that um it'll just take a while and that would probably i don't know everybody's opinions of what looks good or bad i guess is going to vary but i would that might be more attractive if it were just cut back to you just have the 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 low green growth versus a little bit of green growth and all that you know five feet of above ground skeleton uh you know on top of it yeah skeletons just don't look good in yards anymore nah just i guess certain times of the year they're only really when they're desirable that's right that's right mitchell moat has been our guest today with the agriculture extension service and as we close we got like 10 seconds here uh, the farmer's market farmer's market in the morning and it, it's friday morning so uh that's a, tomorrow a, morning a, that's right and a new edition is on fridays you know the, the they have uh, uh artisan kind of stuff included in the market not just the fruits and the vegetables and so on so you know one side of the market on fridays they they have uh, and it's just on fridays not on tuesdays uh but they do have some artisan kinds of things in addition to uh, your regular uh farmer's market uh, uh farmer's market stuff, stuff. yeah that's right Mitchell Moat with us. Mitchell, thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. You're tuned to WGNS Murphy's Bro. It's 9 o'clock. Stay with us. News comes your way next. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank. 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender.